Hi, Chloe. Hi, Ralph. How are you going? Yeah, pretty awesome. How are you? Yeah, really good. Uh, had a great great day at work so far today. Uh, get to work with you <laughs> and and Nick Maz. So it was a, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a good morning. My team's all really, you know, pumped and really loving 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 work, and uh, everyone's really passionate and it's. Really beautiful weather. It's probably a bit hot for you, I'm guessing, today in Melbourne, but it's pretty nice for me. Mm, I'm happy it's a bit for, hot you. for you today. Yeah, <laughs> I've been trying to get as much sunshine as possible. So yeah, I've been really enjoying it. So yeah, yeah great, really good day. You can have mine as well if you want. Okay, I will. And um, again, we had some awesome uh, reviews on the Apple Podcast app. So. Thank you so much. Uh, I go in and check it regularly. So keep keep them coming, please. Uh, loving when you write what it is you are loving about the podcast means a lot. Yeah, means a lot to me mm. too. But I don't get as many DMs as you because I'm not wow. as cool. <laughs> well, well, well. There's been lots of chuckles from from last uh, week's episode uh, in regards to. <laughs> The, the the dating. Uh, so it's maybe not surprising, but there hasn't been any dating DMs, uh, uh. <laughs> dating slide into my DMs. But uh, there have been other awesome things slide into my DMs uh, for us to discuss uh, prior to going into the key topic for the day. So I thought we could we could open with that. How does that sound? Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. So there's there's three there's three great things I'd like well there's three things I'd like to chat about. The first one, the first one, and and Raph and I do not take lightly to this at all. The first one is some freaking Pilates police bullshit that no one asked for. So, <laughs> we we feel pretty we feel I feel pretty passionate about this, and I'm, I'm thinking you're going to as well. So. One of our wonderful grads, relatively new newish grad, um, sent me sent me a private message uh, of um, a screenshot of a comment uh, that literally just a random Pilates instructor uh, from overseas, from you know different different train whatever, um, just took it upon them to. Basically, form shamer, Pilates policer uh, on one of her photos, and so I mean, I can I can go into sort of you know I've I've, I've screenshot and she's comfortable with me uh, talking about this on air, um, but basically just writing so the the. It literally, they wrote, the movement of the pelvis is missing and the C shape, the original exercise, is different. Okay. <laughs> did we ask? Did she ask for any feedback? No. Yeah, thanks thanks um, for your feedback. Yeah. And, and then, and uh, so this, this um, particular grad of ours private messaged this person and said, your feedback is not warranted. I didn't ask for it. 
you know, what, what place do you have in, in doing that? Um, to which they wrote back, you should learn how to do Pilates and only after learning the exercises, post them. You are one of the many people who ruin what Pilates has created. Get serious about the get serious work that's best. Yeah, I'm what, sorry. How, that, what do you what do you feel? How do you feel about this, right? That's just I'm sorry. That's just a big fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Next. Like, what the fuck? But I want to I want to highlight this because. Uh, for those, and, and, you know, if I get a message like this, you know, as someone who's been teaching for many, many years and obviously, you know, will very clearly say, oh, you know, as you just said, fuck you next, uh, I think that, you know, messages like this uh, to to newer grads, et cetera, and we can loop this, you know, we've all, we all know as a, as a newer grad you've got so much already going on in your head, you know, Am I going to be good enough? Am I this enough? Am I that enough? What intent is a message like, like, oh, like this sort of stuff's not cool. Like it's not okay. You know, it's like it's not okay. And if you are listening to this and you are currently studying to be a Pilates instructor for the first time, if you're a newer grad, and just know that, that a message like this is totally utter bullshit, like absolutely bullshit. What's the name of zero. What's the name of the person that sent the message? It was a. Oh, uh, I don't know if I've got that here. Oh. I don't know if I've got that here, but it. <laughs> And they actually they actually wrote it in a different language as well. Um, it wasn't written in English, so um, the recipient of the message needed to translate it as well. Um, but yeah, it was a really it was a real it's very it's nasty, it's unnecessary, it's simply untrue. And if we bloody have to loop back into this freaking hashtag real Pilates again to say, you know, there's no such freaking thing, just stop. Just stop, yeah. Um, but how dare you say that to someone? Yeah, I, I, I just repeat my response. Fuck you. All right, what's yeah. next? Okay, cool. So there we go. We don't tolerate form shaming, and please know that you don't have to tolerate form shaming either. Cool. And form Excellent. form okay. shame is it's you know it's just like if you're insecure and anxious and take it out on the world by you know. Being an asshole, basically. Mm, that's exactly. What yeah, I think form shaming is a. It's sort of like an over. It's almost a bit too soft. It's just. It's just a good old fashioned being a fucking asshole, really. Mm. <laughs> that's what we used to call it back in my day. Did you? Yeah. 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 You know, when yeah. you're an asshole to someone, we just said that's called being an asshole. Anyway, yeah, let's move on. Okay, let's move on. Cool. Excellent. Okay. Next, um, I had a, a message from one of our listeners who was just cur- curious about my opinion on um, the evolution of Pilates. So uh, her background is originally quite quite a classical um, uh, training and background, 
and she uh, has found that her personal style has has naturally evolved and she's now enjoying more of a, um, you know, she referenced lunges and squats and uh, et cetera, et cetera, a, di- a different, so, you know, more, um, for want of a better word, I guess we would loop into a contemporary kind of style. Um, and she just wondered, you know, what, what I thought about that and, and kind of like was it okay to evolve it? And, well, hell yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. Like it's all Pilates. And, and when I um, I had a really interesting, I, I'd like to reference here, a really wonderful um, email back and forward I had with the incredible John Howard Steele who I know everyone's like, oh, Chloe, you're his biggest fan girl. Well, yeah, I probably am. Um, so for those that don't know who John Howard Steele is, you need to know who he is. <laughs> he has written the incredible book Caged Lion about his personal time uh, with Joseph Pilates and also the uh, evolution and continuum of Pilates post uh, Mr Pilates' death. And... I was lucky enough to be introduced to John through Amy Havens and I had been getting really super duper into the depths of, you know, okay, well, what was what was Joseph's original reformer sequencing and the nuances of it and so on? It's harder to find. It's a, as we know, it's easy to find his map because he wrote it down and returned to life, whereas um, the reformer, well, he didn't leave us with, you know, something like Return to Life. He didn't leave us with a manual as such. And we know that uh, the uh, the villain of the novel, Sean Gallagher, uh, owns kind of all the uh, intellectual property, which were the the photos that, that Joe had on his gym wall. So it's hard to get your hands on it. It's hard to know what, what it was. And so I thought, oh, look, I've got the source. I've got the source. I'm going to ask. And I, and I wrote to John and I said, hey, John, uh, myself and Heath, so Heath, uh, my wonderful colleague, uh, myself and Heath are trying to nut out, you know, what's the original order? Would you be, could you help us out? You know, this is what we might think it is, you know, would you be? And and he wrote a very pertinent, I probably almost should read it so that I'm not, you know, misinterpreting it uh, or getting it wrong. Well, I don't think I'm misinterpreting it, but basically John wrote back and said, uh, no, no. <laughs> I'm 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 really not interested in in opening in opening that up. Like he said it lovingly and with with all due respect, but he's like, Joe didn't write it down, and maybe he didn't write it down for a reason, or maybe he didn't want other people to steal his work, which could also be another reason. He said, or maybe you know, but it it wasn't recorded for a reason, and. Pilates and the form of Pilates and the choreography, et cetera, has evolved and the creativity that we see, you know, with with instructors all over the world and, and the joy they take in teaching and the joy they take in coming up with creative programs, et cetera, and, and the joy and the movement that that's getting, you know, out there to our to the community and getting people engaged with, with movement and exercise, et cetera, why would we want to? Why would we want to put a lid on that? Mm. So, so I'm I'm all for any evolution you want to go to. I'm also for you know exploring and diving deep into 
the Controllogy exercises as well. Like I love, 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 love doing that and I love teaching them. I also love teaching a good old scooter or a lunge or a whatnot. Um, and the other thing I, I to be honest, I'm very passionate about this, as you can hear, Raph, and I could happily talk about this for a whole episode. So I'll try, I'll try and help myself in a moment. But what I also say to students who I've had asked me this before when um, they've taught a class where, you know, a math class where they have their clients squatting and lunging, et cetera, and then someone said, wait a second, but this is Pilates. Well, just because Joseph didn't write it down in Return to Life, we actually do have a decent amount of home movies, for want of a better word, with Joseph leading, you know, uh, groups of men and women uh, through uh, large outdoor workouts where they're doing everything from boxing drills to star jumps to squats to, you know, um, wrestling drills. Uh, there's some great footage of Joseph doing um, what we commonly know kind of as, as animal walks and crawls um, from sort of that gymnastic uh, style. Um, yeah, that, that would be my answer. Go for gold. Do all the things. Embrace it. Get people moving. Have you got anything you wanted to add to that, right? No, just what you said. That's what I said. Yeah, so that's my thought on it. So thank you for asking uh, my opinion on it, but that's my opinion. Um, and, okay, we've got one more <laughs> one more DM um, to answer, and this one is really for you, Ralph, and it relates to uh, something that we brought up in uh, episode 18 which was around our strength and you referenced uh, loading loading tendons and the stiffening um, of tendons. And this listener uh, wrote in, and I feel like now I'm on a radio show, this listener wrote in <laughs> and um, asked, she, she trains uh, a lot, she works with a lot of dancers and ballet dancers and her concern was if we are stiffening uh, tendon and ligaments by a load, will that then reduce um, a dancer's range of movement? Uh, to which I, I reference the wonderful work being done by Dr. Sue Mays, who is uh, one of the chief physios who works with the Australian Ballet. And she's basically got them to, uh, as far as I know, stop them stretching and actually work on load and has significantly uh, reduced the injuries they were getting. But I'm going to hand this one over to you, Yeah, um, it's a great question. So basically, you know, we said uh, last week that when you do uh, resistance training, one of the adaptations that comes from that that contributes to increased strength is that your tendons become stiffer. And stiffer tendons are better able to transmit the force produced by the muscle to the bone. So that results in you know, more of the force from the muscle being actually applied to moving the bone. So hence, you know, you're able to manipulate objects in the world, you know, that uh, require more strength to manipulate. So in other words, you're stronger. So the question is like, well, does does that increased tendon stiffness that comes with resistance training, uh, does that reduce flexibility? And the answer to that is no. Uh, and now there are two uh, two kind of reasons uh, or two sort of part things that I'd like to explain about this. 
Um, the first one is that actually what we find is that um, when you do strength training that involves working the muscle at long muscle lengths. Um, so, you know, you could say like working through full range of motion, but it's actually not the full range of motion. It's actually just working at the long part of the range of motion. So if you only do like half of your range of motion, but it's the long half, not the short half, um, you know, so for instance, if you were doing like, I don't know, toe touches, right? You know, it's it's the end half of the range of mo- movement, mm-hmm. you know, right before you get to where you can, as far as you can go, right? So it's, it's your mm-hmm. end range. So if you do if you do muscle strengthening exercises that include long muscle lengths, you actually increase your uh, range of motion, your flexibility. Uh, and there's there are a couple of studies on this. Um, uh, which I've got. One is O'Sullivan et al. 2012, which I linked to in the show notes, and it's called The Effects of Eccentric Training on Lower Limb Flexibility, a Systematic Review. And spoiler alert, what it basically finds is when you train at long muscle lengths, you increase your flexibility. So, uh, And so that is strength training, right? So this, this is like with weights and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that strength training increases flexibility. Now, that, now that's not something that uh, actually has been shown. You know, in fact, research on stretching is very um, is not is is not fully developed. I would say, right? So we've got a lot of research on interventions up to kind of eight weeks and a few up to twelve weeks, but we really don't know much beyond that, right? So we know that if you stretch for six or eight or 10 weeks, we know what happens and probably why it happens. But we don't know, you know, people have been stretching for five years, 10 years, 20 years. We we don't, you know, we haven't really studied those people because like that would be a 20 year long study, right? So it's really hard to, to quantify mm-hmm. that. Um, so we know that strength training uh, at long muscle lengths increases your range of motion uh, if, you know, when done for like eight weeks or less, um, but we don't know, uh, you know, whether if you keep strength training at long ranges of motion, if you keep getting more range of motion. And my my intuition on that is you probably don't, right? So when you when you start strength training at long, you know, that includes full range of motion or long muscle lengths, you get a bit of increase in range of motion. But that you know, eventually, fairly soon, you know, it doesn't keep increasing forever, mm. right? So if you just keep like doing deep squats, for example, you know, it, you don't wake up one day and go, oh, I can do the splits, whereas like. You know, two years ago, I couldn't even touch my toes. No, I don't, th- I don't think you, you just get, you know, incredible flexibility. So that's one thing, actually. So, yeah, the, the myth is kind of that strength training uh, reduces your flexibility. In fact, it doesn't. Um, although there is an asterisk to that, which is that, you know, if, you, if you're talking about like extreme, you know, elite strength athletes, um, some of them do have reduced range of motion in some body parts. So if you look at, for instance, power lifters, and these are people who do nothing but strength training, right? So their whole sport is like, how strong are you? Mm -hmm. Um, They tend to have tighter shoulders than the average population. So it's kind of hard to scratch between your shoulder blades. Mm -hmm. And I can say that from experience. Yeah. Um, Didn't you have have an itch that you couldn't scratch? Yeah. I've got one of those back brushes. It's it's really good. Um, And, but, but power lifters tend to have more mobile hips than the average population because they uh. squat deep and deadlift with, you know, long muscle lengths and stuff. So, um, yeah, so it's it's not the case that strength training, you know, as a general rule, stiffens you up. Um, uh, of course, after a single session of strength training, if it's unaccustomed, you have a body sensation of feeling stiff, 
right? But that's that's not the same thing as strength training, reducing your flexibility long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is that actually when you stretch, um, uh, a single bout of stretching, uh, you increase your flexibility, but that only lasts about 30 minutes, right? So if you know if you did some stretches to warm up or whatever, you would increase your range of motion. Um, but about 30 minutes later, that goes back pretty much back to baseline. And so what happens when you do those stretches is something called viscoelastic deformation. So you basically, uh, you know, when you stretch something uh, like a rubber band, it's got so it's got like an elastic uh, range where basically if you stretch it and then let it go, it just snaps back to its original length. But um, our tissues have also this property viscosity so they basically as you stretch them they kind of deform a little bit so they don't go back to their original resting length they go back to a little bit longer than what they were before the stretch um, but then over about half an hour they base they you know kind of gradually you know return back to their original configuration and half an hour later you're basically back where you started so uh what we find is that that transient increase in flexibility after static stretching um, is due to actual change in the length of you know tendons and muscles and whatnot, but that's mm-hmm. a very temporary phenomenon. And that's incidentally why static stretching, you know, holding a static position and stretching is a is a really bad warm up because it 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 stretch it literally stretches your tendons and your muscle fascia and stuff and reduces the maximum contractile force mm. of the muscle by about 10 percent uh, again for that kind of like half hour to an hour kind of range so you know static stretching before sport is a terrible warm-up because it reduces how much explosive mm-hmm. force you can produce um and so you know if you were going to stretch before sport you should do dynamic stretching you know like moving through range or uh, um you know like high kicks and things mm. like that. And and same and same if a with a Pilates class because if you're about I, I've I've seen people where the, the warm up is they lay on their back and one foot in the Pilates circle and, and hold a static stretch before you're gonna go into some dynamic lunging and whatnot. It's like no. Nah. Right. Yeah. I mean you know and I you know I think before a Pilates class it's gonna be minimally problematic, right? Because you know Pilates class at no point are you gonna exert one hundred percent of your maximum strength, mm. right? Whereas mm. if you're in an athletic event where you're, you know, you have to sprint as fast as you can to get the mm. ball, or whether you're, you know, in a high jump, could be event, the difference right. between <laughs> winning and losing, right? right? You don't want to be ten percent less strong than you could be, yeah. um, so, you know, because at at the elite level, we're talking about differences of one percent or less that yeah. make the difference between winning or losing, right? So, uh, however, when you stretch over a longer period, say like you know eight weeks or so. Uh, you get a progressive increase in flexibility. So if you stretch it, you know, if you stretch once, you get a bit more flexible for 30 minutes or so, and then it goes back to baseline. But if you do it, you know, several days a week, what you get is a progressive increase in how far you can stretch. So it doesn't go back to baseline. You know, progressively you get more flexible. And this has been well established by a large number of studies. So it's very un, you know, it's very well established, very uncontroversial that when you stretch a lot, you know, like uh, regularly over a you know prolonged number of weeks that you do in fact increase flexibility. We know that that's you know that's a thing. Um, but what is very interesting is that that is not due to any change in the properties of the muscles or tendons. So when you stretch and you get more flexible, you don't actually stretch your muscles longer. You don't actually stretch your ten stretch mm-hmm. your tendons longer. Um, and there's actually a study called. Uh, can chronic stretching change the muscle tendon mechanical properties? 
a review. That's from 2018 by Freitas et al. And I'll link to that in the show notes. But the spoiler alert is no, it cannot. <laughs> Conclusion, yeah. no, it cannot. <laughs> um, so, so um, you know, there have been a number of theories proposed as to, you know, why we are able to 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 have more range of motion after we stretch regularly for a few weeks. Um, and, you know, so people have think like, you know, it reduces the stretch reflex or, it, you know, lengthens the muscle tendon or it um, uh, reduces, uh, you know, inhibits the muscle or it, you know, there are so, so many different little theories of it, but um, all of them have been basically, you know, or you get extra sarcomeres in series in your muscle. All of these are basically failed to have been shown in humans. Um, and so what we're left with um, just by kind of a process of elimination is that we've ruled out everything else that we can think of is that what we what the current you know scientists currently seem to uh, think causes that increased flexibility is that you just become desensitized to the painful sensations of stretching mm-hmm. right so you normally when you stretch and you get to your limit what stops you going further is actually it's painful it hurts right and um so what happens when you stretch regularly is probably just you become like accustomed to that position and it just hurts less and then you can go a bit further but and we you know we know this from there are a whole bunch of interesting studies maybe we'll do a whole show on stretching one time but um yeah, yeah I reckon basically be. the 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 short answer is will will strength training make you stiffer uh only if you do like elite powerlifting and you're talking about the shoulders um but if you're talking about you know just doing like what a regular person does like a couple of sessions a week where you do some push-ups and some lunges and you know, or whatever. Um, absolutely not. If you do them through full range or basically including long muscle lengths, you know, so if you go deep into your lunges, for example, you will in fact increase flexibility. Yeah. So there you go. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, Raf. Great answer. Well, that <laughs> our intros, we've spoken about this, haven't we? Our intros are getting longer and longer. Yeah, why not? <laughs> It was great. Okay, so that was cool. Now, what are we going to talk about today? Um, well, I want to talk about something called root cause fallacy. Awesome. Sounds sexy to me. Can mm. you give it a? Can you? Can well, anything with root <laughs> in the name. You know. Oh. Um, you know, like potatoes and things like that. So. Yeah, so root cause fallacy is something that, um, you know, a lot of people uh, in Pilates, I think, subscribe to uh, and and out of Pilates as well. I think a lot of, you know, I've met a lot of osteopaths and even physiotherapists and exercise physiologists who sort of have this belief system that basically mm-hmm. when, when, when you've got a problem in your body, say you've got like a sore shoulder, um, that, you know, there's somewhere in, you know, there's this kind of fallacy that if we just treat the shoulder you know, that's just sort of masking the symptoms. Whereas if we actually uncover the quote root cause, unquote, um, you know, that might be somewhere else in the body. There might be an imbalance, say, in your, you know, in your opposite foot. You know, maybe your arch is a bit Mm. pronated in the opposite foot. And then what that causes is an imbalance in the ankle, which spirals up to the knee and then to the hip Mm. and then to the SI joint and then through the spine Mm. and through the scapula and through the opposite shoulder girdle. And you end up with this symptom, which is a pain in your shoulder. But actually, it's the actual problem, you know, the quote root cause of the problem is in your opposite foot. And so until we actually get to the bottom of that and treat your foot, everything we do is just going to be like putting a Band-Aid 
you know, on a burning house basically. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's, I think that's a fairly common, you know, belief system that there is a such a thing as a root cause for, for mm. you know, these pain symptoms that people get and that it's not always located in, you know, in the same place as where the symptoms are and that, you know, highly skilled practitioners of whatever modality can, you know, use their skills to identify the root cause and then treat it and eliminate it. And then, you know, so basically, you know, this would be like, if you come to my Pilates class and you're like, oh, my shoulder's really sore today, I'm like, huh, look at your left arch on the foot. Just lift your second mm. second ray of your, you know, mm. left foot up just a quarter of an inch there. And you're like, holy cow, my shoulder doesn't hurt anymore. I've had that shoulder pain for 30 years. And I'm like, yeah, that's just the sort of miracle we do here every day, you know. Would this be the same as, for instance, um, the misconception that, you know, Low low back pain caused by non-activating glutes. Therefore, uh, if I the yeah. root cause being like, is that is that what we're saying? Like, it be like you know, oh, I'm going to get your glutes to activate. That's got to be the root cause of your low back pain. Once I get your glutes to activate, no more low back pain. Yeah, I think it's kind of it is basically the same, uh, you know, shaped, you know faulty thinking but i think that it, there's there is a distinction which is that i think with the say that your glutes aren't firing thing i think that's kind of just a, a knee-jerk thing that a lot of people have it's like oh you've got a sore tooth oh it must be because your glutes aren't firing you know it's like that's that's the solution <laughs> to every everything you know um uh so, so whereas i think with the um <laughs> Yeah, like oh, I'm just giggling, yeah, because it's now it's like, oh, I'm not going to bother going to the dentist. I'm just nah, going to do some nah, more scooters. Just do some more, just do some more clams, yeah. Um, and don't forget to poke yourself in the butt vigorously while you while you do those. Yeah, to yeah. ensure, yeah. to ensure, because I'm only going to know it's activating if it goes like yeah. really firm, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. Right, doesn't doesn't matter that I've got a layer of smushiness on top, and that's just it's got to go firm, right. Um, so, but I think the distinction, so yeah, so with the glutes, I think it's more of just a knee jerk thing with a lot of people. It's just like, okay, that's just kind of the catch all, you know, solution to all of the world's problems is like, oh, let's just get your glutes firing. Um, whereas I I think with this kind of root cause, I used to be like that (laughs) with this kind of root cause, you know, fallacy, I think it's more of a, there's more of a reasoning process that people put into it and they, uh, and they try and kind of tease out and follow the breadcrumbs you know so they, yeah. they might look at your shoulder and go oh that shoulder's a little bit <laughs> lower there and look let's look oh no your l4 yeah, 5 is, is a little, little bit, bit rotated and naudy a little bit um vinnie rehab a little bit also the the the, the rib ring theory this is where we're going right yeah i mean i don't really i'm not familiar with vinnie rehab's work and i'm not interested in becoming yeah. so but okay. But yeah. I think I, I would characterize this as like, yeah, it is like what I would characterize as basically a, a kind of an overly intricate, um, yes. you know, somewhat convoluted, often sort of clinical, you know, clinical reasoning anatomy process. Anatomy trains. Yeah, anatomy yeah. trains. Anatomy trains falls fair and square right into the, the bullseye yeah, of this. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm with you. I'm yeah. getting it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And what it does actually is, um, and I'm sure we'll go into this, but it freaking, there's, there's, it's pathologizing. It's pathologizing normal. It's also, you know, it it sounds pretty darn nocebic to me as well. Would yeah? 
and yeah. etc. Well, it's kind of like if someone looks at me and goes, "Okay, Chloe, one of your feet feet does this, the other one does that." Oh, you know, you better you're gonna have to solve that before you get rid of the the pain in your shoulder. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. Excellent. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of fault. There's this huge faulty reasoning here. Where where are you going to start with? I mean, the the first one is to think that we can that we can pinpoint pain and a cause of pain. I mean, that's yeah. That's not so how pain I, works, right? I guess yeah. I mean, I think you know we talk about nocebo, you know, just about every week, and this we do talk about def- it a lot. Definitely yeah. falls into that basket. But I think I'm more interested in this from the perspective of the of the practitioner. So if you're a Pilates instructor mm-hmm. or you know movement teacher or whatever listening to this. Um, I think you know the why where I sort of am where I would like to help you know be able to help people with this conversation today about this is that I think a lot of people you know see other practitioners doing this kind of reasoning or hear their clients say oh you know I went to my X Y Z practitioner and they adjusted my you know second toe and all of a sudden my neck pain was gone or whatever mm. and and people you know and then and people hearing these stories then think oh what am I missing out on that I don't understand this stuff and I want to, you know, I, I must, I want to understand how the body works. And then they go and, you know, do you know, 10 years of anatomy study and, and develop these highly overly elaborate, you know, interventions, or they just kind of feel like, Oh yeah, I'm, I don't, there's, I'm missing out on a whole heap of skill and knowledge. And I feel less of a practitioner because I don't have these kind of almost mystical ability to diagnose why you you know why your right patella misalignment would be causing your left hip pain or something you know um so i think this is more of a um mercy mission for practitioners um that actually yeah this stuff is not something that's real and you don't need to worry about it mm. and just giving it. just giving regular old exercise is just as good yeah um, okay. Yeah. So, so basically, um, you know, this is uh, this approach is falls fairly fairly and squarely into the anatomy trained basket. And there's also um, uh, someone called an American uh, physiotherapist called Shirley Sarman, who wrote a, mm-hmm. a couple of books in uh, I'm going to say like early 2000s. I can't recall exactly when they were published, but uh, I guess I could look it up. Um, and uh, Diagnosis and Treatment of Movement Impairment Syndromes, Shirley Sarman, 2005, there you go. And then she wrote one called, uh, a second one, like four or five years later. Anyway, so mm-hmm. basically this is like a combination of, so like when when you have a, you know, quote, movement impairment syndrome, um, which is, this is what they call this in the in the science literature, right? They call it movement impairment syndromes, you know, what, but what we, we're talking about just what we've been describing, you know, you adjust mm-hmm. some, you realise that someone's, you know, right elbow is causing their left knee pain or something, you know, but just the root cause is somewhere else in the body. And so right. basically what this, this sort of uh, process, this clinical process is when you're using this kind of reasoning of, you know, root cause or movement impairment syndromes, is you basically they basically use a combination of posture, so they'll look they'll check someone's posture, um, highly detailed. So they'll check you know the posture of the left half of the pelvis and the posture of the right half of the pelvis, you know, separately. For example, um, I'm feeling triggered already, Ralph. Yeah, um, um, maybe we need a safe space for you. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and so, but that's not all. Then they'll evaluate, say, movement patterns, right? So they'll mm. evaluate, like, um, you know, when they 
you know, walking, you know, are they walking with heel strike or a forward strike or whatever? And then, uh. they'll, then they'll also evaluate mu- muscle activation patterns. So, mm. you know, when they're walking, are they, you know, contracting their glutes before the hamstrings or the hamstrings before the glutes? Can, can I just put my hand up here and just – so I just want to preface. So I just want to check, sorry. So they're doing this though just via eyesight, right? There's no things attached to any – like th- this is just – this is just they're just assessing this by eyesight. Yeah. Right? So typically, it's it's postural analysis. Might they might use a plumb line? Um, sometimes they use like an inclinometer, which is just a little, basically a just a little GPS device, or or even could just be a little bubble with liquid in it that you stick on someone's back, upper back and lower back, and they just measure the angle between them. But mostly, it's done by sight and by palpation, mm. right? And then they yep. do muscle tests. So they might test the length or strength of the hip flexors, the hamstrings, the glutes, the abs, the whatever, you know. The, the those, good old Thomas test. The Thomas test. All of those um, uh, Kendall et al. muscle yep. tests. Um, and, uh, you know, then they'll do sort of a yonder, Vladimir yonder sort of style muscle activation you know, tests like are your glutes firing before or after your hamstrings? Is your transverse abdominis firing before or after your deltoid? You know, whatever. You know, not all of mm. these, but they'll basically what's whatever's relevant to the particular person's you know presentation, right? Mm. Um, and then basically whatever they find, they will you know adjust and and correct, right? So they'll, they'll if your glutes are firing too late, they'll train you to find your glutes earlier. If your hip right, you know, tensor fasciae is too tight, they'll stretch your right tensor fasciae but not your right psoas. Um, you know, so they basically adjust, you know, if you're not you know, firing your glutes when you heel strike during walking, they'll train you to do that, you know, et cetera. So they basically address all of these things. Um, and uh, what they find is uh, this just actually is no more effective than just giving general exercise, right? So if you just get that same person and go, hey, I'm not going to do any kind of assessment on you, but why don't you just go home and do some kneeling push-ups and some curl-ups and some supermans and some squats, body weight, you know, do that three times a week, come back and see me in six weeks, what we find is those people get the same results. Without the nocebo. Yeah, and without all the overly elaborate, you know, freaking rigmarole, you know. It's mm. like just just they can just get moving on the first day, like in the first five minutes. It's like, go, mm. just move. Mm. So, um, yeah, so there are a couple of studies uh, and one is one I think we we talked about uh, at, in a previous um conversation which is from 2016 uh which is uh effects of low back and of stabilization or movement system impairment um treatments on induced postural responses um there's another one that says a tailored exercise program versus general exercise for subgroup patients um then there's another one, which we, this is the one we talked about, which is called movement system impairment-based classification treatment versus general exercises for chronic low back pain, randomized controlled trial. And basically all of these um, find um, the same thing, um, which is, uh, and I'll read to you from the results section of the Azevedo 2017 randomized controlled trial, quote, there were no statistically significant oops no statistically significant differences between the two groups which basically says that so this is the group that got general exercise you know some squats some lunges some push-ups whatever um mm-hmm. and then uh you know the group that got the special movement impairment 
you know, syndrome correction exercises. So, um, yeah, it's like it's all it's all basically just smoke and mirrors. Like it doesn't actually increase the sort of benefit of any exercise that you do if you address the quote root root cause because mm. there is no root cause. Mm. So maybe we need so, to talk about that. Like, the, why is there no root cause? Yeah, the, I would. I would. Yes, that's that's where that's where I was about mm. to go with that. Yeah. Mm. So, um, and to do that, we need to talk a little bit about pain, really, yeah. because when we're talking about this root cause, we're talking about someone presenting with something hurts. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so something hurts, and you know, people when something hurts, you you want to do whatever you can to stop it hurting, right? But no one wants to be in pain. You know, I totally get that and I totally get why people seek out, you know, something to stop the pain. Um, yeah, so let's, yeah, let's have a chat about, you know, what, maybe you could start with the current, the, the up, it's the updated version of um, the definition of pain, yeah? Yeah, well, before before I get to that, I think um, okay. uh, I think you're absolutely right. Like, pe- you know, um People want to do whatever they can to help. And I think, you know, people who do this root cause thing, it's not like no one's trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes or anything. It's just like that they mm. think they think that's the best, you know, way to help people, but it, it turns out it's not. Um yes. when you look at the research. And I think it comes from a basic conception, you know, and we talked about this last week, of of the body as a as a mechanical you know, uh-huh. engineering device, right? And and so, you know, if you're thinking the body is a machine, right, and you've got a pain in your shoulder or your back or your hip or whatever, it's like, well, you know, that must be the, you know, there's damage in that area and the electrical wire, you know, from that area to your brain or, in other words, your nerves, right, are trans- transmitting the, the, the information that there's damage in your shoulder to your brain. Mm. And when that information gets to your brain, you know, you perceive that as pain, right, in your shoulder. Um, and lo and behold, when you have pain in your shoulder, it feels really feels like your personal experience is that there is something wrong in your shoulder. Like that's that's what it feels like, right? When you have pain in your shoulder, it doesn't feel like oh my shoulder's perfectly healthy, but it just hurts. It feels mm-hmm. like there's something wrong with my shoulder, and in fact, that's the nature of pain. Um, um, but it turns out that that is actually not a good explanatory model for how how humans. Uh, perceive, you know, how pain arises. Because mm. uh, when we look at, um, I say, the MRI, you know, magnetic resonance imaging or CT scans of people with shoulder pain, um, we find that, you know, some certain percentage of them have things in their shoulder like, you know, bursitis or rotator cuff tears or, you know, degeneration or, you know, various different shoulder, you know, findings. Um, but then when we look at people with no shoulder pain, you know, just healthy volunteers with no history of shoulder pain, and we MRI or CT their shoulders, what we find is a very, very similar incidence of those same findings. You know, so we find like a lot of people with no shoulder pain, no history of shoulder pain have, you know, rotator cuff tears or degeneration or tendinopathy or bursitis or, you know, all kinds of different itises and otises and opathies of the shoulder or the back or the hip, you know, like something like 93% of uh, pain-free people have some kind of positive finding mm. in their hip, you know, whether yeah. it's a, a, a labral tear or a cam deformity or blah, 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 or a, something else, you know. And so 
you know, it's, it, there's obviously not a one-to-one correlation between having some kind of itis or osis or opathy in your body part and having pain in that body part because there's heaps of people who've got those itises and osis and opathies in their body part and have no pain. And conversely, there are a large number of people who have pain in a body part and MRI can't find anything wrong with the body part, right? There's, there's nothing happening inside the shoulder that we can see on an MRI that explains your pain, right? So it, pain can occur in the absence of any of these findings. And also these findings can occur in the absence of pain, which just says that they're not very strongly correlated, right? Then there, there is some correlation, but it's not a very strong correlation. And so this conception of, you know, the body as a machine and, and pain indicates there's something wrong in the machine, it just doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't fit that evidence. Um, uh, and so, you know, we, we don't yet have a perfect model of how to conceive of pain, but a, a better model um, is uh, that, you know, pain is an assessment by your brain, your central nervous system, that there's a threat, um, there's some danger um, to that body part. And um, your body, your brain, sorry, perceives that threat based on inputs from the tissues, you know, body sensations that you feel, you know, with pressure, vibration, temperature, chemicals, whatever, um, and also taking into account the health of the rest of your organism, you know, like how stressed are you, have you had enough sleep, are you well-nourished, are you generally in good health, do you have, you know, good mental health, etc. All of these things play a part. And then also previous experiences, beliefs, the social environment, you know, how supportive your loved ones are, all of this kind of stuff. And we know this from a large number, you know, sort of a wide variety of research. But I mean, you probably if you're listening to this, you've you've experienced the you know, that when you are tired and run down, if you stub your toe or, you know, bump your shin on the coffee table or something. Freaking kills. Yeah, it hurts more, right? Oh, man. At end of the world stuff sometimes. But I, I have to talk myself through it now. When <laughs> I do that, I go, no, it's okay. It's okay. You're real. Like you're experiencing this more acutely because you're so tired. You haven't had your coffee yet. <laughs> whereas, whereas, because I, I use this analogy with my students, where it's like the difference where you're out having fun with friends, you've had a couple of cocktails, maybe you're dancing, someone steps on your foot in their high heel, and you're like, ah, oh, what? You know, you're just like, yeah, well, you know, whatever. Right. Like, whereas that probably, you know, <laughs> more, hurt more than the, the stuff, you know, the, the stub of the toe. So it's like. Well, it probably yeah, did more damage than damage, the stub of the toe. Damage, yes. That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so, so. so pain, pain and tissue damage are not the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like you've probably also had the experience, if you're listening to this, of like getting undressed at the end of the day and in the mirror and noticing, oh, I've got a bruise on my knee or hip or arm, arm or whatever. And it's like, oh, how did I get that? Right, and well, you know, a bruise is an injury. It's it's broken blood vessels beneath the surface of your skin. So it's like there was some kind of impact that was hard enough to break blood vessels, which is the definition of an injury. Right, you've damaged your tissues, uh, and if you didn't notice getting it, that means you didn't feel pain. Right, because, um, uh, and here we get to finally the the medical definition of pain, which is um, a I, bet, I guess I better get it up. So I don't get it wrong, <laughs> but it is a uh, a sensory and emotional experience. Just let me get it up. 
Um, it is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Um, so the first part of that is it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. So it's like, well, if you if you have a bruise at the end of the day, you don't remember getting it. Well, you didn't experience getting it. You don't have an you didn't have an experience. Mm-hmm. So there was no pain, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, and furthermore, it's associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So in other words, that there's like two layers of you know dissembling there where mm. you know pain is removed from tissue damage at two removed. So it's associated with or resembling that associated with, right? That's one layer, and then actual or potential tissue damage. So it might be something pain might be pain might resemble something associated with potential tissue damage, right, according to the medical definition. And that's by the International Association for the Study of Pain. Um, and I'll link to that in the show notes. So, yeah, so pain is not the same thing as tissue damage. And uh, so this, you know, this machine model of how pain works, you know, like there's a there's a a damage in a body part and the, the nerve conducts the information of that damage to the brain. And then when the when that information hits the brain, bam, you feel pain. That doesn't fit what we know about the world, you know, what, what we know mm. about how pain works. Um, and so, you know, probably a better metaphor for, um, you know, for you to think about this, and obviously this is not like physiologically, you know, accurate, but I think it, it gives you the right thought process um, is, uh, and I can't recall who, you know, where I got this from. Maybe it was Greg Lehman, where maybe it was Ben Cormack, um, maybe it was Barham Jam, or maybe it was all three of them, but um, called basically the cup of resilience. Um, I think it's um, it's a Lehman. Lehman? Think it's Lehman? Right. I think it's well, Lehman, yeah. Shout out to Greg. I think it's Lehman. I think it's Lehman, but we love all of them. Yeah. Everyone you just mentioned, we love them all. <laughs> um, and, and I'll find it and link to it in the show notes. Um, and, and so basically, you know, Think about your cup of resilience is like how much shit you can tolerate, right? Yeah. And shit just being like stressors, right? Uh, and so you can pour stressors into into that cup. And we all have stressors in our lives, you know, even when things are going great. You know, we've got maybe, you know, low sleep is a stressor or yeah. not eating well is a stressor, not getting enough exercise is a stressor, having a fight with your loved ones is a stressor, financial pressures, you know, um, relationship troubles, you know, work stresses, you know, whatever whatever stresses, you're right? pretty. You're pretty darn lucky if you don't have any stressors in right. your life. I, I think you're unlucky. That's what gives it a bit of spice, you know. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, cool. I mean, you don't want too much, obviously. But, I mean, if if, every, if you had everything you wanted all the time exactly when you wanted it, life would be pretty darn boring, wouldn't it? I feel pretty relaxed. But <laughs> yeah, for about five minutes and then you'd be bored as You'd <laughs> be like, oh, now I'm bored. Yeah. Give me a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and we know about flow state is, you know, how you get into flow state is where there's high challenge and high skill, you know, yeah. meet, right? And so, well, if that's a stress, like that's, you know, you're under pressure to perform. That's what high challenge is, right? Mm. Um, so anyway, um, so, you know, you can pour these stressors into your cup, right? And we've all got some capacity to tolerate this, right? So if you're exercising and eating well and you've got a loving relationship and you're getting on good at work and everything's grand and then you have a couple of bad nights sleep it's like yeah no big deal you can tolerate it no, you know but if you then if you have a few bad nights sleep and then a few bad weeks of sleep and also you're not getting on with your boss and also you 
you know, significant other and you were not getting on, or say you haven't been eating well, and or say you haven't been exercising. It's like at some point, you know, the cup overflows, right? And uh, the overflow can be a number of things. Like, so, you know, we all have probably some, you know, kind of area of our physical or mental health that is the kind of the first, you know, place where the cup overflows. And so for me, it's like I get I get a sore throat, you know, I get kind of inflamed tonsils when, I, when I'm run down. Um, and for other people, it might be like you get that familiar shoulder pain or headache or backache or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, cold or cold sore or whatever it is, you know, like we all, you know, most of us, I think, because um, when I do this with groups of people, you know, most of them tend to stick their hands up and go, yeah, yeah, that's that's me, um, mm. have, you know, some kind of manifestation of like when you run down, you know, like when I'm run down, it's generally I know because I get a sore throat, that's the first thing I get a sore throat. I'm like, ah, yeah, I need to look after myself a bit better. Mm. I um, get the sore throat or the achy back. Mm, mm. And so, um, and one of the things that, you know, can be a result would is pain, right? So you can get back pain or neck pain or shoulder pain or knee pain or hip pain or foot pain or whatever, head mm. pain, you know, yep. gut pain. Um, and so, you know, when we think about that, uh, you know, cup of resilience metaphor, um, you know, if you poured in a bit of, you know, lack of sleep and a bit of low exercise and a bit of fighting with your spouse and a bit of financial pressure at work or whatever, it's like, well, did the lack of sleep cause the pain? Nah, it was just one of the things that went into the mix, right? And all up, it was the the, the aggregate, you know, the, the combination of all of those things was kind of like a perfect storm and that was enough to, you know, overflow the cup and cause pain. But there was no one single component that was yeah. the cause, right? And one of the things you might pour into the cup, right, is a bit of wear and tear on your freaking tendon or a bit of inflammation in your bursa or a bit of irritation in your disc or a bit of whatever, you know, like there, there might be, you know, tissue, inf- there might be inflammation in some body part or whatever that is part of that, you know, mix, right? But what we find is a lot of people with that same inflammation or same bursts uh, in, you know, enlargement or same tendonitis or tendinosis or tendinopathy, whatever, don't have pain. And we find that it's it's the aggregate of those things together that seems to correlate more strongly with pain rather than any single one of those things. Mm. Yeah, so I recommend uh, updating your metaphor to the cup of the res- of resilience. Or another another great metaphor I think is the iPhone. Or you know, let's be generous. Androids work just as well. <laughs> but um, I like on an iPhone, right? I, I know an iPhone because that's what I've got. It just has one button on the front. Actually, mine's got no button. But um, back in the day, they used to just mine's have- Mine's got a button on the front? Yeah. You used to just have one what button. What do you have? <laughs> I think I've got an I've got eight. Yeah, yeah, okay. There you go. <laughs> you know what? I went I went to the Apple store the other day and I bought myself a new phone case because my phone case was a bit cracked and I was bought it and it arrived and it didn't fit. And you know what? I bought the wrong freaking- Model. I bought a twelve. You wrote the wrong. Yeah, I bought oh, a yeah. iPhone twelve case. I'm like, oh. oh, I didn't even know which one I had. But apparently, <laughs> apparently, it's not a twelve. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> but it's an upgrade on my eight. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. So when, like, when you press the the button, the front button on your iPhone, or if if you've got a eleven like me, it's the side button. Yeah. Um, 
there's only one button there, but a different thing happens when you press that button depending on a bunch of factors, right? So if you press the button and the phone's turned off, it turns the phone on. If you mm-hmm. press the button and the phone is on, but the screen is locked, it'll bring up your passcode dialog. If you press the button and the phone's on and unlocked and in an app, it returns you to the uh, home screen, right? If you, mm. yeah, so depending on other factors, right, when you press that button, different things happen, right? So there's no like hardwired connection from that button to, you know, making something happen, like a, a hardwired connection from a light switch to the light globe, right? When you turn the light switch on, that only ever does one thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns the light, yeah. Globe, right? Yeah. Whereas when you press this button, different things happen depending on the context because the button doesn't go to the screen, the button goes to a processor. And the processor also has other inputs, like uh, what yeah. apps are open, is the phone on, is it locked, et cetera. And then the processor goes, okay, someone pressed the button. Okay, hold on, let's just check. Is the phone on? Is the screen locked? Are we in an app? You know, checks all these things. And then goes, okay, what's the appropriate response here based on all of that information? And then it, you know, generates the response. And that's probably a better metaphor for what happens inside your brain when you have a message from your tissues saying, oh, there's, you know, an itis in your ligament or tendon or whatever, right? So you get a message from the the shoulder going, oh, there's some rubbing in the shoulder or there's an bursitis in the shoulder or whatever. And then the brain goes, okay, hold on, you know, have we been sleeping? How's nutrition going? Are we fighting with the wife? You know, how is, how's things financially? Are we coping? You know, do we have we been exercising? And then decides on an appropriate response. And if, if the answer to a lot of those questions is like, yeah, no, we kind of run down, then the appropriate response might be pain, right? Whereas if you've been looking after yourself and you're in great physical shape and great mental shape, well, the appropriate response might be like, yeah, no further action required, don't worry about it. Mm. You know, so the output might be no pain, right? Mm. So, yeah, so I think that's probably a better metaphor, either the mm. cup of resilience or the the iPhone, let's say, 8. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm, so okay. um, there is no there is no cause, right? There is no cause, right? When when your shoulder hurts, why does it hurt? Just because, <laughs> just because. And what yes. should you do when your shoulder hurts? Well, you should think about your health, right? Just all of the things that promote good, flourishing health, right? Just in general in your life, right? So what promotes good health? Like what are the things that when you do these things, you know, regularly and consistently, you know, you feel better both about yourself and about the world and also feel physically and mentally like more healthy. So it's things like getting enough sleep on a regular basis, eating good quality food on a regular basis, not too much and not too little, exercising regularly. You know, I'm not talking about activating XYZ muscle. I'm just talking about going for a fucking walk or something, you know, like doing some push-ups, like some real, just getting moving, right? Um, having, you know, time in nature, uh, engaging in meaningful activities, you know, whatever meaning, you know, is to you, but, you know, activities that you find meaningful, um, you know, feeling like you're contributing to something larger than yourself, feeling like you're making a difference for other people, uh, you know, meaningful connections with loved ones, you know, ringing up a friend, sitting down on your on the sofa with your spouse for a glass of wine or, you know, like spending time with your kids, you know, playing stupid kid games that they enjoy and you're rolling your eyes, but you kind of love it at the same time, you know, all of that stuff, um, you know, that's what makes people resilient, right? That's what that's what promotes mm. health. And those are the things I, you should do for a sore shoulder. 
Yeah, and and I think though as well, um, what I'd like to loop in there because this really, this uh, this is a concept you talked to me, you first talked to me about years ago. Now, um, I think it might have been when I brought up that well, I know you know like it's not always possible for someone to have a good sleep. Aka, a new mum mm. is you know going to be woken up multiple times um, throughout the night. So if we're saying that, you know, all of these things are beholden on, you know, and we do know that shitty sleep contributes to an experience of an amplified potential experience of pain or, you know, more sensitivity to it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I remember thinking that because it's like, well, that seems really like that's tough for the new mummers. And then I think at that time too, maybe I was living somewhere where uh, it was really noisy and I had a neighbour through the wall who came home from work every night at like 3am and her shower was through my wall. So literally woke me up and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. So that was leading to a sense of non-resiliency. I mean, and, and a lack of self-efficacy because I was like, well, this doesn't seem within my control and I know how this is therefore flow on effect. But you described this really cool thing, Ralph, and I, I hope you can remember what it is because I can't remember what it's called, but basically let's say you've got like column on one side and a column on the other, right? And yeah. you might have like the things that, that, top up your resiliency resiliency cup, right? And the things that that deplete it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But you don't always have like it doesn't like you can kind of push a bit more over one side and a bit more over the other. Can you can you remember that and describe it a bit yeah, better? Yeah, and I think this is something that I've I got from a guy called Adrian Lowe, who's a physio I believe from South Africa. Yes. Uh, and basically what what uh and I'll link to it uh in the show notes, but basically you know, so there are these lists of things which I listed, you know, a few of them a minute ago, like getting regular exercise, having meaningful engagements with, you know, people you care about, contributing, eating well, getting enough sleep, you know, all of the things that you know in by your own experience, when you do them, you feel mentally and physically more healthy. Um, and then there are kind of the, the opposite side of those coins, right? So what are the things that make you feel mentally and physically less healthy? Well, it's going to be basically the opposite of all of those things, like getting not getting enough sleep, not eating well, not exercising, not spending enough time with loved ones, not engaging in meaningful activities. And then there's going to be a few other things in there as well, like maybe, you know, drinking and smoking. Uh, drinking alcohol and smoking, um, maybe uh, hanging around, you know, people who are toxic to you, um, you know, people who sort of drag you down like form-shaming idiots on social media. Pilates <laughs> police. Yeah. Um, you know, and so there are, you know, there are, and and then you make a list of these things and, and there's always going to be a balance. Like into every life a little rain must fall and we all have some degree of, you know, shit hitting the fan on any given day, right? So you never have this sort of perfect nirvana of everything's brilliant and you don't need to, right? You can have great health, mental and physical, you know, even if a couple of things aren't perfect. Um, And so the thing is like there are going to be some of these things that are within your control and some of them that are not within your control. Like if you're a new parent, like getting enough sleep is probably just not an option for you right now, right? Or if you've got like just some crazy you know, deadline happening at work that is massively important, right? Well, just like getting some more work-life balance right now is probably just not an option, right? So it's not about making – but the good news is, right, it's not the sleep or the work-life imbalance that caused your pain, right? It's just the too much shit in your cup, right? So if you can just pour a little bit less of something else into your cup, right – 
that leaves a little bit more room for not having enough sleep or for having a crazy deadline at work or for fighting with your mother-in-law or whatever, you know, is going on for you. And so yeah. you can bolster, you know, you can think about, okay, what are the things that I can bolster? What are the things that I can, you know, yeah. control? It's like, okay, maybe maybe I can't get enough sleep, but maybe I can have a glass of wine with my loved one every night, right? Or maybe I can't do that, but I can go for a walk in nature for 20 minutes or yeah. I can meditate or I can, you know, mm. have I two more bits of broccoli, was- you know. Yeah, for me, it was really, really important when I felt like I had not the control over, you know, the, the sleep due to the neighbor. For me, it was really important that I went for my run. Like, so I was tired, I was tired, you know, it's like, ugh, you know, but actually, no, it was so important that I went, you know, for my run, uh, which, mm. which you know, it helped, helped positively fill my cup up a bit more, you know, and just just adding in those things. And when I didn't do that is when it was like I felt overwhelmed and things were out of my control in regards to my health. Yeah. And th- I mean, and this might sound like if if you're listening to this and you've come from, a, you know, a strongly biomechanically oriented sort of mindset and, you know, like where basically you you – you know, when someone has a sore shoulder, for example, because we've been talking about shoulders all all day, um, you know, your assumption is there's it, that we're talking physical here, right? So if there's a, if there's a pain in the shoulder, there's something physical wrong somewhere, right? Whether that's mm. in the shoulder or somewhere else in the body, there's something rubbing, pressing, stretching, pulling, you know, too much, mm. you know, somewhere. Um, and so that assumption is like a strongly biomechanical kind of orientation. And so now, you know, here with Chloe and I going, oh, no, it's like it's your emotions, man. It's like, you know, <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's pixie dust and, you know, fairy. Get out fucking, your smudge stick. Yeah, glitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, and I don't want to make fun of, I don't make fun of people who do like smudge sticks. No, no. I've got friends who like love, to smudge we house, love, but We love fire twirling and all of that stuff. Yeah, well, look, one of my one of my uh, boyfriends when I was in my early twenties was one of the best fire twirlers in Sydney, actually. Mm. <laughs> Respect to all the fire twirlers out there. I've moved. Hey, it's a sk- like it's a freaking amazing yeah, yeah. skill. Like it's really cool. Anyway, we yeah. really digress there, mm. but but yeah, like I guess what you, yeah, continue, Raph. Well, I, I guess, yeah, what I'm saying is like it's if you've come from a really strongly biomechanical background and you're used to thinking about levers and cogs and forces and all mm. of that kind of stuff and we're saying, no, it's your emotions, man. It's like, oh, eat, eat some more kale and you'll be right. Three um, more pieces of broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, no, this stuff has got really fucking solid evidence behind it um, and yeah. to the point that uh, you know, multiple studies in different body parts, but again, thinking about the shoulder, um, there are two systematic reviews, or, no, sorry, very large cohort studies that I'm thinking of that have both found that look, so this one study um, looked at, um, let me let me just look it up so I'm giving you the correct information so I don't have to do more corrections like I did last, <laughs> last week. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh My, uh, that um, that correction that you did last week was interesting because I went, I had a look at our show notes, mm-hmm. and that just to to that was also it was about um, females and males can actually 
yeah, put on muscle at the same rate, same same, on muscle same, same hypertrophy, rate. hypertrophy response. Yeah, and yeah. it's not it's not really it's not linked to testosterone levels because. And I read further into that that there's actually a testosterone is very important for muscular hypertrophy, like muscles growing. But actually, it's it's one link in the chain. There are other signaling molecules that are involved. So just having more testosterone by itself isn't enough to increase. Uh, and anyway. Um, yeah. So cool. anyway, so I found the study. It's called. Uh, awesome. It's from the uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine, published in 2016, and it's Chester et al. And its title is "Psychological Factors Are Associated with the Outcome of Physiotherapy for People with Shoulder Pain: A Multicenter Longitudinal Cohort Study." So they had 1,030 people in this trial. So it's a very large trial. Um, and they were people um, referred to physiotherapy for the management of shoulder pain, and um, they looked at baseline at 71 different factors. So what they looked at were a whole range of things from like, you know, range of motion to muscle strength to, you know, pain levels to, um, you know, a whole bunch of different things, 71 different factors um, mm. that they used to diagnose these people. And then they followed them for a year, no, six months. Um, they followed them for six months and then they saw who got better and who didn't get better. And um, and then they, they, they used statistical uh, analysis to correlate, you know, those 71 things, you know, range of motion, strength, pain levels, whatever it was, um, with, you know, who got better and who didn't. What they found was – the uh, most strong predictor of who got better was psychological factors. Uh, and I'm going to read from the conclusions, quote, psychological factors were consistently associated with patient-rated outcome, whereas clinical examination findings associated with a specific structural diagnosis were not, end quote. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, like that, you know, the MRI findings or the muscle strength or whatever were much less predictive or in fact weren't predictive of outcomes whereas people's you know, psychological health basically their belief that they would recover or not mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. the strongest predictor of whether they would recover so this mm-hmm. stuff isn't just woo woo it's mm-hmm. actual real hard science and there this isn't just one study there are other studies that have replicated this um, same finding in the shoulder and in other body parts and uh, so it's a real thing, like your psychological and social kind of well-being, uh, and just all over health. Like there's lots of studies linking, you know, sleep with pain and anxiety with pain and stress with pain, and all these, you know, different things that we're smoking. About. Yeah, smoking. Um, you know, general fitness and exercise. Uh, you know, so basically all of these factors are, you know, part of the picture, and there's no one single thing that is the quote, root cause, unquote. It's just a matter of, you know, improving people's, you know, health, you know, and well-being and resilience and doing all the things that you would normally do to just improve that. Um, and that's what you do for shoulder pain. And that's also what you do for back pain, as it turns out, and knee pain and uh, hip pain mm. yeah, and neck pain. Mm. Yeah. So and that, any other pain. Yeah. And also it probably uh, also works for a whole bunch of uh, – you know, I'm getting a little bit speculative here, but there's some very interesting research uh, that suggests that it's probably also uh, very important for things like irritable bowel syndrome and eczema and migraines. So, you know, basically, you know, unexplained medical symptoms, basically. Mm. Yeah. So, mm. 
kind of feels like we're, I think we're done on that. What do you think? Yeah. Great conversation. It's just so, it's so fascinating. And um, uh, I, I've got to do maybe a little shout out to, you know, if you're starting to get into sort of um, pain and learning more about the science of pain, or you might already be really into it and it's, you know, you just want that little bit extra. The, the amazing Louis Gifford books. Oh. I think, I think we should, we should link to them because I tell you what, what magic. Oh, yeah, like but, as in science. Mm-hmm. By magic, I mean science. <laughs> so Louis Gifford's um, Aches and Pains, uh, he was an incredible um, uh, physiotherapist and by I say was because he has um, sadly passed and he actually wrote these these three books um, from, his, from his sickbed, uh, really, which gets me emotional every time they – they, he talks about you get a list. Uh, I think is it with every chapter, you yeah. get a list of what books were on his, like what he yeah. was reading yeah. at the time. He yeah. tells you what's on his yeah, bedside table instead of references. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you actually get um, what was on his bedside table um, when he passed as well. It's it's very. I get quite emotional about it, <laughs> but it's um yeah it's it's they're they're incredible books, and he was really. Would would we consider him a a pioneer, Raf? Oh, totally. In yeah. The, the science of pain, yeah, Louis Gifford. Um, and there's another. There's a fantastic paper um, from 2010 by uh, Isle Letterman called "The Fall of the Postural Structural Biomechanical Model." Uh, we require our diploma students to read it, um, and it's just. I think it's a fantastic summary of, uh, you know the the evidence for moving away from this you know biomechanical way of thinking about pain um, and moving towards what we call a more biopsychosocial model of pain where we 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 address not just the biology um, but also the you know the thoughts and emotions and the social context of the person you know basically what we've been talking about uh, mm. today and I, and I hope that when you've been listening to this and you can start to see that you can't have one without the other. So so human beings are made up of their – it's biology, your psychology, social construct, um, and, yeah, pain is, is, is always being – you know, it's, it's, it's an amalgamation of all three. Yeah, and pain, you know, pain is an, an emergent phenomenon – yeah. Um, it's not. It's not. You know, a thing. You know, we can't see pain on an MRI, right? It's not. It's not a physical mm. entity. It's an emergent phenomena, like sort of consciousness, for example. Um, you can't see consciousness on an MRI, uh, mm. and so you know, it is in. You know, like just to the same degree that we don't really understand what causes consciousness, <laughs> we, mm. we we probably have about the same degree of understanding of what causes pain. Like it's really. Mm. Fucking unbelievably complex. Yeah. And we've just got the vaguest, foggiest idea ideas about, you know, what contributes to it and, you know, what might help it a little bit. And it's like with all things in biology, it's unbelievably messy and sort of, you know, smudged, right? It, it's not like an engineering problem or a physics problem or a maths problem where there is one, you know, correct answer to it. Mm. And, you know, that that's the answer and we get to, you know, stamp it correct and, and move on you know with mm. biology it's just like think about like psych the psychology literature right like you could have two people with the exact same sort of psychological distress symptoms but the treatment might need to be you know like they don't have the same exact like 
problem mm-hmm. and and the treatment you know it, one, the treatment might work for one person and not work at all for the other person right mm-hmm. because humans are complicated <laughs> and and when we're talking about like outputs of the brain like emotions and pain right which are both outputs of the brain um they're really fucking complicated and just thinking that we can reduce it down to this muscle is got a freaking something on it or that tendon's got a something on it, whatever. It's like that's just mm. way, way, way oversimplifying mm. it, you know. It's like my right look- foot supinates, therefore my left shoulder hurts is just, yeah, nuts. Right. It's like just looking at the fucking Andromeda galaxy and going, yeah, I, I know what caused that. You know, it's like, mm, no, right. it's just <laughs> – it's just – it's too – it's complex beyond our ability to understand right now. Um, mm. But what we do know about it is it's not caused by one single – there is no one thing that causes pain. Like even – like you might be thinking like, oh, yeah, but what about if you like put your hand on the stove and burn your finger? Like surely that's just like tissue damage caused pain. Yeah, even in acute situations like that, right? So imagine you walk up to the stove, it's on, you know, the burner's on, you stick your hand in the burner, it hurts. Why does it hurt? Well, because you burned your hand, Right. But mm-hmm. imagine you put your hand on the stove to pick up your six-month-old baby off the stove, right, with the burner on, you would not feel that burn, mm. right? You would be 100% focused on picking your baby up, right? Mm. You would not notice any discomfort. Later, you'd notice it, right? But mm. so even in that moment, like that like sort of archetypal example of you know sticking your hand on a burning hot stove, right? Mm. It's still a biopsychosocial experience. You know, pain is still an output of the brain, and the brain has the ability to turn pain on and off depending mm. on the level of threat perception. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All right. Yep. Great chat, Raf. Yeah. Hey, um, if you listen to this and you like it, you know, thanks for writing. Thanks for writing us a review. You know, yeah. Thanks for Thank giving you. us five stars, and thanks for writing. Thanks for writing something. You know, write something really creative, right? You know, these guys are freaking awesome. They're changing <laughs> the face of Pilates and updating our narratives. You know, write whatever you want. Don't let, don't use my words, but you know, write, write something to make us make us smile. Yeah, and and as I said, I'm I'm jumping in and I and I and I read them and I and I check them. And the you send, reviews you, you send them I, to me. You send them to me on a text message. I send them to Ralph, all excited. Um, so yeah, helping us, helping us elevate uh, the podcast. Uh, in turn, helps us elevate health literacy. So, thank you. Yeah, you're awesome, and Chloe, you're awesome too. You're awesome too, Ralph. Thanks for being a great boss and awesome friend. <laughs> you too. See ya. Bye. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means 
You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.